0: Hello, it's Crystal from RuPaul's Drag Race UK Season 1, and this is The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the pop culture and real life moments that shaped us. I'm sorry in advance if I sound a little croaky, it is the Monday after DragCon UK, and whoo boy! I did a lot of talking this weekend. <laughs> for anyone listening who was there, thank you so much for coming by my booth. Um, it really, really, really means a lot to me. And I met so many of you that said, You listen to this podcast, and that was really nice and really gratifying. So thank you. But yes, my voice is suffering, my serotonin is depleted, but I'm feeling all the love, and I hope you are too. Okay, so where to start with my guests this week? Well, firstly, they are a prolific actor and incredibly inspiring queer voice whose work has really shaped my life and my career. He's perhaps most famously the writer and director and star of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, but he's had a huge career from indie films like the groundbreaking Short Bus to more lately blockbuster tv shows like sandman joe vs. carol uh and an evil gay and shrill i really don't think i can overstate his impact on the culture enough and i am so thankful to have his time for this podcast please welcome john cameron mitchell hi john hello thank you for being here how are you where are you
1: i'm good i'm in new york i've been traveling a lot i bought a house in new orleans on the back of my joe exotic series Mm. for that and just doing a bunch you know all kinds of things right now yeah writing directing acting performing
0: gorgeous fingers in all the pies Hmm? i always ask guests to give their pronouns and how they identify so maybe we can start with that
1: yeah i mean i i I'm an actor and I'm old, so I don't change my pronouns, even though I, you know, I'm non-binary, but it's kind of a, a natural state of being that is not a label I like too much because it implies what you're not, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. eventually I think hopefully pronouns will just be fungible <laughs> <laughs> as they were when we were, when I was a young gay and everybody was whatever pronoun you wanted. So yeah, that's a, a vague answer.
0: That's fine. <laughs> Do you identify as gay, as queer, like, sexually? Well,
1: I'd say queers easily. Uh-huh. Yeah, probably the easiest way.
0: Great. Well, I, it's funny you say that. And I think more and more every guest I've had this season has been like, why are you asking me to label something that is as unlabelable as...
1: <laughs> and I... <laughs> I know. You know, when you're young, you, labels are very important because you're separating yourself from your parents and the people who ruled you and so labeling and defining yourself at an early age is very important to young people and then it becomes less important as you get older because there's other issues mm-hmm. in life and you tend to forget what people are right you don't think about your friends as in terms of their sexuality or gender you tend to just think of them as your friends and so you know but they're important just like pride marches and things are very important. They were important when I was young. And the idea of a million people in one space is less attractive.
0: Yes. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. I think that's, <laughs> that's very the true. Bathroom it's, issues. It, it's a useful way of finding your tribe when you're young and figuring yeah. out where you fit into the world. And then it becomes a little bit less important.
1: Yeah. And you realize you are a gender of one and a category of one and you interact with other genders of one and hopefully with respect at first. And then you know, and then we're all part of the team.
0: Oh, you should tell Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I stay off
0: of that. Am I right that you came out as non binary this year? Is that, or is that grossly overreported?
1: I guess so. But I don't think of it as a, as a coming out. You know, it's just kind of like we said, you know, the pressure to label yourself is, is stronger than ever. And I never felt the need to. Though when I was a young actor, I was definitely being told not to discuss my sexuality. Lest it affect my career because people didn't want to cast you as straight if you were gay, for example. And, you know, it was the age of AIDS. It felt very cowardly to be in the closet when mm. people were dying and, and stuff needed to be done and protests. And so, you know, someone can tell me how to be on camera, but don't tell me how to be in my life. Mm-hmm. So I was always very open since 85, when I was starting to do movies and stuff. And maybe I didn't get some jobs because of it, but I wouldn't want to do jobs with those people anyway, who had a problem with it. So to me, again, you know, young people get come up into this world, a difficult world, and feel the need to put it in order with labels, with pronouns, with correcting impure behavior. And, you know, it's a big job. It's And when you rush to do these things sometimes you you know there's collateral damage or there's mistakes mm. made and you know i tend to be more of a turtle than a hare you know i like mm-hmm. create my projects over time so that you've thought through it rather than rushing to it or rushing to justice or calling somebody out before you know all the facts i don't like that and, yeah. and it's very very bad for art too
0: yeah it's a real i think problem of modern society that everything we think gets immortalized on the internet because. It does mean it becomes very difficult to change your mind.
1: I was telling people also, I mean, when I talk about the art side, if I put my first gig as Hedvig on YouTube, the negative comments would have, I would never have pursued it, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff that's original needs to develop in the dark, you know, like making a baby. You, know, you, <laughs> uh, you often fuck in the dark and the baby is certainly gestating in the dark. And I don't like people who show their ultrasound baby pictures. Uh huh. Give it to me when it's ready. Uh-huh. You know? I like that. Same, same with Hedvig, same with your band, same with your other art, because people's toxic comments who are often jealous and bored and want to say something snarky so they can get some likes without knowing what it is can shoot down some beautiful ideas and people's egos. And that's why I am really do, do not get into internet arguments. If I'm going to argue, let's do it in person.
0: <laughs> that's actually why I always tell people who are thinking about doing drag that one of the key ingredients for success is delusion. And you need to be able to withstand yes. so much. You need to have such a well of self-confidence that is in spite of anything else that you might receive on the internet or validation yeah. that you, you do or don't get. It needs to come from within and it needs to be stronger. Actually, it needs it needs to verge on delusion sometimes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, some people revel in that world of attack and defend. And it ultimately, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. So you have to be careful Mm. there. I I don't get into those kind of fights. I've certainly involved with movements and activism, but one on one ad hominem just can't go anywhere. If you're in front of someone and talking, you know, you get more facial cues, you get the complexity of a person more, and you can find the humanity, I think, but when you're behind a screen, it can be- become a, a, a toxic spiral. So, I mean, one of the things I'm working on now is a fictional podcast called Cancellation Island, you know,
0: okay.
1: wildly satirical fictional world where, where do the cancel people go? You know, they're all on this island, <laughs> this rehab. <laughs> And uh, it's a lot of fun because I can skewer everyone in sight with love. And, you know, I'm sure I'll be cancelled, but I'm old enough to handle it.
0: (laughs) If you stay cancelled, you don't have to get cancelled.
1: Well, in the future, that's true. And in the future, we will all be cancelled for 15 minutes. (laughs) So let's get ready.
0: That sounds amazing, this new podcast. I've just been listening today to your Anthem series, which I didn't know about until I was preparing to to chat with you well that's the
1: thing it's like you know these fictional podcasts are not popular people are like oh can i be on it i'm like it's fictional (laughs) it's
0: not you Uh
1: they're like i'm like imagine a tv series but there's no visuals Uh (laughs) i don't want to do that so it's very different you know i'm trying to create something that was more popular in the 30s than now
0: yeah radio play
1: but with glenn close and Patty lupone and Cynthia Erivo an incredible cast, 40 actors, 40 pieces of music. So I'm trying to do another one that's less ambitious, but more topical, I think.
0: Right. Well, I've loved listening to it. It's like dipping into the, the familiar world of Hedwig, but from a new
1: perspective. It's more autobiographical to a certain point. It's about a guy who's got a brain tumor and he's crowdfunding his care while telling his life story. Up to age 18, that story is mine that I'm telling. And then I imagine other things after Mm -hmm. that so it's an autobiographical novel i guess
0: i mean it's lovely and i highly recommend everyone has a listen and you you bought a place in new orleans yes
1: yeah the magic
0: i love new orleans
1: yeah it's a very queer town and it's very it's solace remains intact despite Mm. the high prices everywhere and it's a perfect complement to new york so it's a, a money pit but i've never owned anything like that before or bought a house so that's a little scary but it also has a ballroom so i want to have salons and Incredible. dance parties and stuff yeah
0: when i visited new orleans it made me feel all the things that i wanted to feel when i visited san francisco
1: yes it's sort of like san francisco was hmm. and art for art's sake is still so important in there which is a term that a lot of young people have never heard before <laughs> <laughs> like the term selling out they're like what <laughs> so, why, what does that mean clicks for click's sake right yeah
0: <laughs> selling out is
1: it's so quaint
0: something i used to worry about but i certainly don't anymore
1: <laughs> that <laughs> well, ship has you know, sailed <laughs> yeah we gotta pay the bills but there is something beautiful about a, a musician who's like you know i don't think i need to sell this song to to apple com- for a commercial it's you know might change the meaning of it. You know, You don't, it's kind of refreshing to hear that. Of course, it's beautiful. That, that person might be able to pay their rent. So unfortunately, that's we're in a capitalist world right now.
0: Well, that gives me hope that there's people saying no to the corporatization somewhere, even if it's not. Made.
1: There are. <laughs> yeah, and they tend to be outside the US and the UK. Yeah. <laughs> people
0: really still, still believe that. Well, I'm so excited to get into your list of items. I think that's what we should do. We should get into it. You know the premise of this show. Every episode, my guest brings a person, a place, a film or TV series, a piece of music, and a wild card that were formative in their queer development. And you have sent me your list. I'm super stoked to start. So up first, we've got your film or TV series. And uh, this is a new one for me. It's Bless the Beasts and the Children. Um, Set the scene for me. Time, place, who are we? Where are we?
1: Uh, This was like... Early 70s, I grew up in the military. So I lived all over the world, Europe and the US. My mom's British. And so we would get bits and pieces of TV because it wasn't regular, you know, it was military and films would come very late. And, you know, it was, they still had old fashioned cowboy serials before the movies. And, you know, so it was, we were in a weird uh, half American life when we were in Germany, for example. So some of these movies would come at us and we would just take what we can get and one of them was best bless the beast and the children which was best known for its theme song that karen carpenter sang check it out but it's about it's a very queer story it's a summer camp and the the losers the misfits are all in one cabin called the bedwetters cabin (laughs) and that's where i was in my mind (laughs) you know right there at the bedwetters even though i didn't but my bed, I sucked my thumb till I was ten, mm-hmm. and then I substituted the thumb with something else <laughs> so i there was a queer kid in it i didn't it wasn't called gay, but he was definitely the sissy, and weirdly, the other lead, who was supposed to be the tough boy, was obviously gay too, but not supposed to be in the story, so it had the closet case, it had the uncloset case and the closet case was being bullied and another kid defended him. And it was just so romantic. And I was, I was both the bullied and the bully Mm. in my mind and Karen Carpenter. And they run away from the camp because one of their outings was a Buffalo farm ranch where people would go to pay to shoot the corralled Buffalo. And take them away you know the body away and these kids are watching that and and they're horrified and they're thinking of of themselves as those buffalo so they run away from camp to free the buffalo Mm. it's really touching um and you know the bedwetters are kind of like a misfit group of you know loser superheroes you know and they're all quite different and different races and sexualities and the nerds and the you know the juvenile delinquent i think billy moomy was in it he was the little red-headed kid in lost in space oh yeah who went on to have a punk band so he was like the tough kid in it it's kind of hot
0: i'm getting kind of proto goonies vibes
1: yeah you know there was always these little kids together movies and series so that was a big one there was a tv Series called "The White Shadow" about a white basketball pro who is more like the white savior. It goes to um, coach the black kids in you know the inner city high school. But most of these queer characters were sad victims that the liberal straight people were feeling sorry for, which wasn't a great model. No. <laughs> you know at least they weren't the villains and the comic relief. But they also become the pathetic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I felt the empathy of that, but I needed to move on to find the queer heroes.
0: Yeah. Do you think these were kind of some of your first queer visibility moments? You know, had you been exposed to anything like that?
1: No, but it was the 70s. So there was a, a kind of thaw. You know, there was mm-hmm. some TV movies would deal with. Remember, there was a TV movie called Alexander, The Other Side of Dawn. Dawn, <laughs> Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, starring Eve Plum, the middle girl in the Brady Bunch. Uh-huh. As a child prostitute. <laughs> was very influential in in my group. And then the sequel was Alexander, the other side of Dawn, her friend from the small town who ends up in LA and of course ends up hustling. Right. But weirdly, not homophobic, there was a kind of tough talking gay guy who's clearly not gay uh, who was there to help. And then you went into a cabaret and saw Francis Fay, who was a crazy gay icon. So it weirdly was quite queer in the real way and then Artificial in that TV movie way, but I, I really enjoy those. Oh, another one was called That Special Summer or That Certain Summer, and it was about a boy going to live with his gay dad and who was played by Hal Holbrook and his much younger lover, Martin Sheen, wearing <laughs> a lot of black turtlenecks. Martin Sheen. Yes. So they were the hip gay couple that the teenage boy has to go live with during the summer, and it's like, can you deal with his gay dad and the girl that he's in love with? And... And it was really good. You should look for that one. That's Certain Summer, I think it's called.
0: You've given me a huge viewing list. I love pieces from that time, queer stuff from that time, like Tales of the City, I think is a great example of it because it's almost like a time capsule. And I remember reading it for the first time and thinking, this feels like modern day. It's like mm-hmm. pre the pre the epidemic of AIDS. Yeah. So it's got such a, a... Sexual wonderland. Yeah. It's still a hippie. Yeah, and it feels almost... Modern in that way. And it's like yeah. we had to put all of that on pause for such a long time.
1: That's right. Come back around. Yeah. And it has a kind of radical fairy feeling at times. Yeah. You know, queer hippies. I didn't read that back then, but later, you know, certain, uh, Armistead Maupin became a friend and I really love him. He met my dad. They were both in Vietnam. It was kind of emotional. Wow. My dad was also in the closet his whole life, but was a very good guy wow I had didn't let it destroy him. He was a general in the army actually.
0: Wow, oh, I had yeah. no idea were you what kind of messages were you getting as a as a child about your latent queerness?
1: It wasn't really that horrible you know you're it was more like not don't talk about it uh-huh. you know and I remember reading you don't have book as one of your things, but at that time in the seventies, books were the biggest influence so There was John Retchy, R-E-C-H-Y, who was a seminal in many ways, fiction writer, who was (laughs) also, I believe, Chicano in L.A. He was a professor of writing, but also continued being a sex worker, a street hustler. So he wrote about the hustling uh, with books like City of Night, which was a big deal. In the late 60s or early 60s, I read one called The Sexual Outlaw that affected me a lot. And it was titillating, but also poetic, you know, mm-hmm. and it was one called Numbers. And, you know, so he was a big deal. There was a book called The Best Little Boy in the World or The Happy Hustler. And they, they were kind of like the happy hooker was a popular, you know, very 70s bestseller about a hooker being happy. Which is very 70s, <laughs> you know. You know, there was Go Ask Alice and Happy Hooker, and I'm dancing as fast as I can. And these were these were about people on the edge of drugs or sexuality, or the Manson books. These were huge. You know, books about cults. So in the '70s, we were interested in the so-called counterculture. But and the queer was exotic, but it wasn't as othered as anything else. You know, it was just another crazy thing. So in the military bookstore, you would have the Joy of Gay Sex. Mm-hmm you know, that Edmund White, famous writer, mm-hmm. you know, wrote, which is illustrations of guys in mustache having sex. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go a mustache to have sex. <laughs> which I couldn't
0: do. I still can't.
1: <laughs> I did for Joe Exotic for the very first time. And I realized I could, was that real? couldn't do a handlebar. The top was, and then they added the size.
0: Oh, amazing. Well, I, I think that was, that was wonderful just because, basically anyone listening can now have an incredible playlist of films and books to catch up on. And I think, well, what you were saying about that happy hooker as well, it's its another thing that's kind of come back around that we're like, oh, maybe it's possible to be a sex worker and like your job.
1: And again, yes.
0: it's almost like that idea got a bit of a pause for a long time.
1: Yeah, because of AIDS. And, mm-hmm. you know, now is sort of the era of OnlyFans, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. I've certainly had a lot of friends who use sex work in a temporary way or to finish college or whatever. And they, they use it well that, you know, the danger is of course, if it becomes, if it's curtailing other parts of your life, if it's not allowing you to have a relationship that you might want. And, you know, it's like, I think sex work is, is useful when respected, respectful people being treated well, obviously not trafficked, but if it becomes, it goes on too long. It kind of can kind of warp other parts of your life. So you know, it's like it has to be carefully handled. I think.
0: Yes, I think it's it's a bit like being an influencer or any other yeah. career that is based a lot on your appearance and yeah. and your palatability to an audience because you can start to define your worth based on who wants to fuck you <laughs> if you and you don't trust
1: it because you know that's not really anything you did Mm is how you look. I mean, maybe you go to the gym, but you know, when you get compliments or positive reinforcement for something you really had nothing to do with, like your bone structure, it's dangerous because Mm -hmm. you can get lazy. And then those type of things fade, baby, you Mm -hmm. know, you got to have cultivated something else. And we all know those pretty people who did nothing and then just lay about lay back. And then they're really depressed because they haven't done anything in their lives and their looks are fading. You sound like my
0: therapist.
1: uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's why we got to make stuff. <laughs> yes. you know, being good looking is a, a gift. Like being smart, it's what you do with it. It's it's not in and of itself valuable. It's um, it's a
0: raw material. Yes, it's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, let's move on to your next item. So up next yeah. we've got uh your music, and you wanted to talk about David Bowie and specifically the song "Boys Keep Swinging," which is one of my faves.
1: Yeah, I mean Bowie. Like, you know, they say the largest organism on earth is a fungus, you know, because it lives underground for miles and pops up in different spots. And I feel Bowie is the same. Like, he would pop up in different guises over my life, over decades. And early on, I was in a boarding school in Scotland, and we were allowed to watch Top of the Pops. And I remember seeing him dressed as a kind of lizard singing "Jean Genie, and I was scared because it was androgynous, it was masculine, it was feminine, it was everything, and they, usually things stayed in their one category, you know. Young people were like, what do you make, comedies, dramedies? <laughs> you know, they're all genre-based, because that's capitalism, baby. You know, you got to sell it. But back then, he was trying everything, and, and that that was the 70s, eclecticism. You know, it wasn't like you had to have a brand. I mean, his brand was experimentation, I guess. mm mm-hmm. And it was androgynous. And he said he was gay, but he probably was more straight sexually, but he was definitely queer, you know, a queer God in a way, not your best friend queer, but a deity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was really 79 when I, it really clicked because then I saw him on, I was in high school and I saw him on Saturday Night Live. And there's a legendary show, which you should all watch on YouTube where he to promote his album Lodger goes on Night live with these incredible Thierry Mugler costumes backed up by the great trans like pop star uh, Klaus Uh, Nomi, who was German and Joey Arias, who continues brilliantly to this day singing back up in strange little dresses and Bowie's in very, you know, in a pencil communist looking skirt. And then he's in a weird coffin, like, Tuxedo, which inspired something I made in concert. And then he's singing Boys Keep Swinging with, rather than in drag like in his video, he's got a superimposed marionette body. And all of that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> he's doing TVC 1-5, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and Boys Keep Swinging. And it defined my artistic life from that point. That on
0: album where. is just incredible from beginning to end. And that whole... That whole period, that's part of his Berlin trilogy, isn't it? Yes. That whole era is just like a fever dream of creative juices and drugs and uh, androgyny and all of it. And I I feel the exact same way. When I I first discovered that whole period, I was like, what is going on? Who is this? What is happening to me? What is it doing to me? And I think that's the amazing thing about David Bowie is that he, he pops up in different generations constantly and it's like Mm -hmm. this club that you get to find and once you found him you're part of the club and then he continues you see the influences everywhere Mm
1: -hmm. he had a special place in pop culture history that was the artist as pop star which was kind of new you could i'm sure hendrix and and joplin and ray davies and the beatles felt themselves as artists too but Bowie was so self-consciously that, yes. you know, I guess someone else would think it's pretentious to say that, but he really was interested, you know, in experimentation. And that was not the pop world, which is probably why he wasn't really a a traditional pop star and only really, you know, had a couple of, in the eighties, a couple of, you know, big hits, but in the seventies, he was more kind of revered than, than bought, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how I feel about my work. It's like I want to do stuff that interests me. I love to interact. I, I love when it intersects with popular culture, but it doesn't have to. And I've seen a lot of friends go on to become very famous, and that doesn't necessarily lead to happiness, especially if they're famous for something they're not particularly proud of. Because <laughs> then you get fans that you know like mm-hmm. you for something you don't like, and you're mm-hmm. like, well, why are these people liking me? because they can turn on you very quickly if you don't take a selfie with them, mm-hmm. you know, cause they don't really care about the work. They just know that you're famous. And now that people are recognizing me for, of all things, Sandman. And I, you know, like working class people in new Orleans are like, Sandman shouting at me, you know, and <laughs> it's just weird because I've never been the people who recognize me are usually like, you know, one or two people a day who know Hedvig or, uh-huh. or Shr- Shrill and it comes it goes you know I'm, but i'm very happy to have fucked my way to the middle i wouldn't want to be in the top and i wouldn't want to be in the bottom
0: maintaining that integrity is a wonderful thing to, to be able to do and i
1: don't have any choice though because if i do something i don't care about i become a person i don't like i mm-hmm. get cranky i worry about stupid things i get impatient mm-hmm. with the people working and i'm like "Ooh, who am i it's because i don't want to be here mm-hmm. you know it's like doing a job for money mm-hmm you can overcome your distaste for the job because you got to pay the bills, but you can't help but have it a bit still. And it comes out in weird ways, which is why stars behave badly because they're not necessarily doing what they want. They're doing what they think they should want. you know. But then when you have the Bowies, the Stevie Wonders, the princes, the people who had long careers and brilliant forays into sonic wildernesses Patti Smith, Tina Turner, these people who are survivors, but also artists. And knowing that pop and popularity comes and goes, but in the end, it's what you've done, how you've touched people, what you care about. That lasts forever. The other stuff, you know, if you're a kid and you're like, when I grow up, I want to be famous, you're doomed. Mm. You're, it's very dangerous. Because Mm -hmm. that stuff doesn't mean anything. Um, It can help help pay the bills. But you do the bill paying and then you do the thing that feeds your soul. If you lose the second, you're going to be in trouble.
0: Well, my takeaway from that was John Cameron Mitchell suggests everyone quits their job.
1: (laughs) Great resignation. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think, I mean, you know what, I'm here for it.
1: Well, we got to pay our bills. I do my bill paying jobs, but then you got to have the other that you're paying for. Mm -hmm. That's all.
0: Mm-hmm. i remembering that balance. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Holmes. And I'm Matt McConkie. And we are the hosts of Homophilia, the podcast where we talk to awesome
1: LGBTQ plus people about the pop culture that they are consuming
0: and loving and the love lives that they are leading. The conversations that we wish we had had access to when we were growing up. The, the conversations that we would like to eavesdrop on now. But we have them with the coolest people in the world. Like who, Matt? Sir Andy Cohen himself. What? Michael Patrick King, Tig Nataro, Alan Cumming, Jinx, Monsoon, and Vendela Creme. Countless queens from the drag race universe. We're asking all of them about the pop culture milestones that shaped them as queer people. And more importantly, who they're having sex with. There you go. It's the queer conversation they don't want you to have. We're having it on Homophilia every week on the World of Wonder Network. Tune in. Listen to Homophilia on the WOW Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a world full of straight people, aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag (laughs) Race? Subscribe to Wow Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Let's move on to your next item because I think it's going to start to talk about how maybe your career followed that same route. So up next, we've got your place. And you have said New York City.
1: Well, that's not a, a head scratcher. I mean, New York is one of those places. Every nation has them the place where you go to escape where you're from but also connect with like-minded people and start to make things you know some people think you got to make it which is a sort of Mm vague it. but mine was like make things and Mm -hmm. yes of course make it means you can make a living to others it means you're in you know you're on top of the world but to me it was like i always felt I needed to be engaged creatively and that's the only antidepressant that lasts and sure. I want to make a living and I want to rather than popularity or money, I wanted to be collaborating and be respected by the people that I respect. So I will reach out on Instagram, for example, with interesting new, especially queer artists and say, Hey, I love what you're doing. What's going on. Let's meet. And I often find myself collaborating with these people I'm. I want to know who the young people are who are pushing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an incredible musician I learned about because we did a show together at Prospect Park named Jay Horde. Just the J letter and then H O A R D. He's got a new album coming out. Very queer. Grew up. You know, Jews for Jesus. You know, we just had dinner last night. Is brilliant. Brilliant. You know, he he's got a cross between kind of Grace Jones the funk singer, Betty Davis and James Baldwin. It's like, he's just everything and smart as hell. And so we'll do something together, you know, find your people online in person in New York. I was able to find them in person because there was no internet and it was about going out and going to the club squeeze box, which was the best club ever, you know, queer rock and roll space where a lot of drag queens would find their voice because punk didn't need, you know, a Lady Gaga voice to be real. And, and they, these queens suddenly realized, oh, I already am punk. You know, I don't have to play any games. I'm an, I'm the weird misfit who's making art. And it was so inspiring that Hedwig was born there. So New York was, I came in 85. It was the end of a certain era. It was the beginning of AIDS. There was a downtown scene that was still very vibrant. You know, there was a club called pyramid where a lot of people Mm. were formed it was the punk the sexiest bar was called the bar it was kind of a punk queer bar you know and there were similar places in london um and certain other cities berlin but not everywhere because you know gay people like straight people have culture that they've curated and if you diverge from that what do you mean you don't like madonna and you're gay it's like don't tell me what to like (laughs) My whole life was my parents saying I should not like men. You gay, do not tell me (laughs) what to say or what to like in order to be gay. Yes, there are some queer things in common that have to do with humor and camp, and you know, but there's very different versions of that, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, Madonna for me was not it, you know. She, I felt she was a a user and it was all about her. And it's funny because back in the early 80s, there was this silly thing of like both Madonna and Cindy Lauper came out the same year, and it was like, Well, what kind of gay are you? Which I was like, <laughs> There is no question between <laughs> Cindy Lauper and Madonna. Cindy wrote her own songs, had that voice, cared deeply, started the true colors tours, cares about, you know, Madonna's, you know, steals Vogue and then walks away <laughs> to her mansion.
0: The feud starting on this podcast right now. Oh, no, it
1: started way back. She knows I hate her. She's been very, very mean to friends of
0: mine who don't speak about it, but they know, they remember. <laughs> I love that. So this is the New York melting pot of like a... Yeah, it was a lot ...hating on. Madonna and finding your collaborators. And, yeah. you know, did you move there to pursue theater in specific? Or did you have a, a goal?
1: Yeah, I had done... a production of huck finn in chicago at a, the biggest theater there and, and from that i got a job on broadway in big river which was a huck finn, finn adaptation and i was the understudy for huck finn and it was a great job though it was weird because you know you basically had to do what the guy did on stage and it's, there was no autonomy plus they had nowhere for us in the theater so we had to sit in a chinese restaurant next door you know all the <laughs> understudies in the bar getting drunk And New York was still rough, you know, it was AIDS, it was crack, it was people being raped, gay bashed, and I wasn't quite ready for it. So I got a action movie in Miami called Band of the Hand, where I shot a lot of guns, and then went to LA thinking, oh, well, I have to be in the closet. Now this movie's going to be huge. It wasn't huge. (laughs) And I I didn't have the patience to stay in the closet, and I was, you know, hanging out at the the underground clubs and helping my friend with a crazy seventies club. And this was, you know, '86. '70s were not cool, but he would play punk and Carpenters and David Bowie and Stevie wonder. And it was all, all music was dance music. So he, Billy Limbo was my DJ mama. And when I DJ a party called Mattachine, which we still do monthly at Julius bar in New York, it's all music is dance music and we we still do slow dancing. And it's like people have stopped dancing with each other. And we want to bring that back to the feeling of the eighties and nineties clubs where all music was there and um, people were off their phones. So New York, you know, changed me more than anything in the world. And now I'm, it itself has changed and become more expensive. And I have a cheap apartment, thank God, which has affected my relation, my creative life more than anything. Real estate should be one of your questions because real estate <laughs> is destiny in the city. But now I feel the need for another creative space. That's why New Orleans and New York will be my back and forths.
0: How long did it take you in New York to like be comfortable making art and working in theater and finding your footing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was a military kid. So I was always the new kid on the block, moving around, changing my accent to fit in from Scotland to Kansas to Germany. I was like, that was our life, you know. And Hedwig was, you know, based on a German army wife that we knew. So acting was, came natural. But when I came to New York, I was of, like in high school, I would hang out with different groups. You know, I, was, I, I, did, I wasn't one thing. And I'd still love the eclecticism, which is why I love Bowie, you know, who had a lot of influences, but made them his own as opposed to Madonna who stole them. And then there's <laughs> oh, it keeps coming back. It? We're working through
0: a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There'll be a death match. Someday. So it took a little while. I was from a more traditional theater world, you know, doing this Broadway show but kind of bored with that whole world, which involved, you know, confessional cabaret shows that don't tell mama. And stuff. I was going, to, I wanted to go downtown to the pyramid, to the, to the bar, to the weirdo places. There was a great college party up at Columbia. That was my favorite queer party once a week. And you, you know, anything could happen. And I just liked more variety, you mm-hmm. know, I was finding people in from different worlds. I'd make friends in the club world and the theater world and this and that. And people were always surprised that I had my fingers in a lot of pies and, and um, but also coming of age in the time of AIDS. So from the beginning, safe sex was part of the deal. I was very lucky, you know, that I knew about that and, I didn't define my freedom by my sexual freedom as a lot of young gay people did at that time. So they were angry that they were told to have safe sex. Mm. Like, how dare you? It's it. you know, it was equivalent to right-wing people like COVID is a hoax. AIDS is a hoax. It's the, Mm. or the government made it to kill us. Mm -hmm. You know, it was paranoia when you're a misfit. This sadly conspiracy theories are part of that world, which really disturbs me left, right, whatever, you know, Lack of trust in any kind of truth. If all news is fake, all stories are true, you know. And but I found my people slowly. I I sought out filmmakers that were pushing things in a queer, interesting way, like Gus Van Sant, Todd Haynes, mm-hmm. Christine Vachon. I would seek them out at Sundance, at Premieres, and ended up working with them and becoming friends with them. And I was just open, you know to, I'd like to work with you. So I, I don't, some people come to me to do the same and I can't always help everybody, but I want the innovators. You know, mm-hmm. I met a guy, actually I met him on Grindr, which is an interesting, you know, this, the new gay bar, which I kind of invented in my film, Short Bus, check it out. I mean,
0: I, I love Short Bus, but I, I heard you, I don't remember the app in Short Bus.
1: Well, it was pre-app because it was no, uh, uh-huh iPhones them, but it was called Yenta, which was the name of the matchmaker in Federal uh-huh, Of course. So it was a cuter matchmaking rather than grinder, you know, <laughs> it just you know, destroy, fuck them and then destroy them. You know, my, ours was more like, have I got a match for you? <laughs> but I met a guy recently who was making a narrative online project, a, a, a series in effect, but he was putting it on only fans. You know, so the story, you subscribe and you each post is another episode Amazing. about an OnlyFans creator. So it's sexually explicit, like my film Short Post, mm-hmm. but there's a story. Mm-hmm. Sex can be porn and then sex can be part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so I'm helping him with that, which, you know, there's a bit of a panic about sex because of just the fear of IRL and COVID and now monkeypox. Uh-huh. But fewer and fewer young people are actually having it, which I think is a, a shame because that's when you're supposed to in a respectful, fun, crazy way. And I've always been a proponent of that coming from a very religious background. I, you know, I have to f- conquer my own fears about it, but it's a healthy thing. And uh, young people not having sex, is something wrong, you know,
0: you think pe- young people aren't having as much sex.
1: They're not definitely straight. Young people are not. Oh, that,
0: that so that I believe,
1: but queer too. You know, like mm-hmm. I just remember, you know, early on with the apps and stuff, it's like people would show up at the drop of that, and then it was like, you know, there's a lot of texting going. I feel like you know, if I'm oh, going to yeah. get laid, I, you know, I need a grinder intern <laughs> to do my correspondence in the back of where they know.
0: And I you need a yenta.
1: Yeah, <laughs> things can be harsh online too. So I'm extremely friendly try to send some love with whoever stranger I might be messaging with, whether it's someone I might just want to hang out with because they're an interesting artist or have sex with, or be friends with, you know, because in the queer world, all those things can mix. Mm -hmm. And you can do it in a respectful way that doesn't have to be addictive. You know, of course, meth has has come in, you know, been a scourge for the queer world. And I think it's worse than heroin. It won't kill you as fast, but it will destroy your brain, Mm -hmm. your capacity for joy. And with a false sense of accomplishment, and it really is very dangerous. I think of meth as like powdered capitalism. It's just about consuming mm. someone else, consuming your own facial muscles. It's just fucking poison. Mm-hmm. Stay the fuck
0: away. My drag name prior to Drag Race was Crystal Beth, and I I dropped that part of it. I, now I just go by Crystal, and it was because oh. I it was because I felt. Well, I have no personal experience with meth, but I understand right. the ravages of it as a drug. And I thought, you know what? I don't need to be making Underlining a joke about it. this. Yeah. Yeah. That's not my joke to make.
1: No, that's a one-off gag. Like, my other favorite drag name was Hell of a Bottom Carter. <laughs> oh,
0: fabulous name. <laughs> okay. Well, we've tangented from New York to meth, but you know what? Maybe it was always going to go that way. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and we'll be back with more of the things that made John Cameron Mitchell queer. And we are back with the things that made me queer and John Cameron Mitchell. And John, we've got your next item, which is your person. And uh, we're gonna talk about your boyfriend from a specific time in New York.
1: Yeah, you know, my first serious boyfriend was a guy named Jack Steeb, and he was in Stephen Trask's band, Cheater. Stephen was the guy I wrote Hedvig with, of course, the songwriter. And we, Stephen and I, met on an airplane. We were ignoring the midnight, uh, the the in-flight movie when Harry met Sally, and he had a <laughs> Fossbinder biography, and we started talking. And then we kept bumping into each other. And uh, his roommate was Jack, and. Later, Steven said, I just had a feeling that when you two would meet, you know, something was gonna happen. And kind of our first date was a disaster because he had a bottle of whiskey with him. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, backing slowly towards the door. But I think we had sex and it was it wasn't even great, you know. So it was like, okay. But because we were in this band, he was in this band that I was working with, he was still around. Mm-hmm. And the more we hung out, the more we liked each other. It was really hard, but the drinking did scare me. And I th- don't think anyone had told him that because he was a sweet drunk, which is more difficult than a mean mm-hmm. drunk for mm-hmm. people to deal with, uh, know what to do. Mm. With a mean drunk, you just walk away, right? Or you ultimatum. But he said, "I want to. I want to deal with this because of you," which I had no experience with alcoholism, so I didn't realize that's not a really good thing good reason to stop for someone else mm-hmm. it does have to be for you so we had a long relationship that was shadowed by this addiction and uh i learned that i was perfectly i thought weirdly perfectly suited to be the husband of a an addict because i was a kind of caregiver but that's not a good dynamic, you know. It's not a sustainable one, and it might feel romantic, you and me against the world, but it's it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. So we really enjoy being with each other, but there were these things. Plus, if someone's an addict and the other isn't, the sober person feels in control, but they're not because they're dealing with that, and they don't have to deal with their own shit because the other person's shit is so much larger. Mm-hmm. So that's part of. I realized why I was staying because it it would challenge me in one way, but then not in a way that was, I would be called on my shit. Yeah. So it was, I learned a lot. What shit
0: were you not being called on?
1: Well, it's just, I'm not a control freak, but I'm a perfectionist. And I like, you know, I get set in my ways. It's because I moved around so much as a kid and the instability made me super stabilize the things around me, Mm -hmm. you know, not exactly OCD, but verging on it. And you know, wanting to know where I was and have some kind of control and that with an addict, you're the controlled one. They're dealing with their shit. So they can't call you on your control shit. It's an example, you know, and growing up in the time of AIDS sexually kind of confused, you know, with, with, you know, the role of sex because it was a life or death situation, Mm -hmm. you know, with sex so sex wasn't our strong suit either, but we really loved each other. But ultimately, he didn't want much except to be with me. And that was frustrating. You need someone who wants something. And so we broke up. But he spun out of control and died oh. you know, in 2004. And it's still, you know, when that, something like that happens, you have this irrational guilt and, you know, it's, it's a long recovery process but he taught me a lot of things you know and he taught me even though he wasn't didn't love himself and i think the anti-gay world didn't help in his addiction you know because he had good parents you know it, it was i really believe that his addiction came from the world disapproving of who he was mm-hmm. and he could pass a straight which is whatever but he always felt like there was something wrong with him, but he also knew about punk, you know, and he taught me about it and real punk, you know, and he was funny as hell. And he had a proclivity for loving movies with starring old cranky, old straight men, you know, and Charlton Heston and, you know, all of these terrible actors. And I could see the charm, you know, James Coburn and all, it was just, we enjoyed watch, you know, laughing. And, uh, I was the dynamic one. He was a bit more the stay at home and, you know, kind of shy, but everyone loved him, you know? So he taught me a lot about being with someone, taught me how, you know, taught me about what was cool, Mm -hmm. but he just didn't have enough self-love to to survive.
0: How long were you in each other's lives?
1: Well, it was very off and on because of the drugs and the rehab, but it was about eight years.
0: Wow. Wow. I'm I'm sorry that it had a, a tragic ending.
1: Yeah. Well every everything has a tragic ending. <laughs> <laughs> if
0: you take it far enough. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. What else was happening in your world during this period? Is this like the the Hedwig Times?
1: Yeah, that was the band we Stephen and I created Hedwig with and we did it first at the squeeze box party. Learning from the great queens of the day and other performers, you know, i Mistress Formica was the incredible host, and we vaginal Davis and mm. Joey Arias and Anthony, now Anoni, and Laverne Cox, and John Waters was there every week. And, you know, it was kind of scary, very exciting, truly rock and roll. I'd see hipsters like the Beastie Boys or John Cusack come and be scared and run. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah.
0: (laughs) There's nothing I love more than scaring a straight man.
1: Exactly. And, you know, nowadays it'd be like, quickly get the picture with them. You know, now, but then it was more like, can't handle it, get the fuck out.
0: Uh Uh-huh. I love that.
1: So in that angry environment, which was dealing with the last years of AIDS before the protease inhibitors, was a very volatile time. Giuliani was coming in and trying to fuck up nightlife. It was still New York. I really believe, you know, Giuliani pushed it away from what new york was for better and worse you know he, there were cabaret laws you know he would invoke and stop people dancing and you know he was just the grinch and you know was, of course he's born out to be the the Gollum now mm. now that we see who he really is but there was a very exciting time and Stephen was the head of the house band at squeeze box jack was the bass player it was a a scene you know and Debbie Harry and the plasmatics and these various Mm. bands would play there and it was so exciting and and connecting the queer with the punk again which did connect at the beginning of punk but had kind of become untethered kind of brought it I mean you know punk was invented by a black drag queen called Little Richard in my view you know who was Bowie's hero much more radical than Elvis Presley you Mm -hmm. know so that was our those were our progenitors jane county who later started uh, coming to short bus after yeah. i did head who was the original punk rock trans queen originally wayne county now jane county who's still in the atlanta area
0: yeah i mean just an interjection but go listen right now to jane county on spotify because the songs will blow your mind yes
1: try if you don't want to fuck, fuck me, me fuck off, fuck
0: off. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. My friend performs that. Oh yeah. Here in London. Yeah.
1: To see Jane County put her head in a kick drum and <laughs> it opened up things. So that's, that was the birth of Hedwig. It came out of that scene. We weren't doing it to make money, to get clicks, to, you know, be famous because drag was low class. It was not like it is now. Punk was not going to be on Broadway. Drag was not going to be on Broadway. So we were doing it for pure love, not for commerce. And, when you do something for pure love, it becomes more original, becomes more what it is. You're not thinking about how do I sell it. You're just thinking about how to make it better for you and your friends. Take opinions, but you know, don't need everybody's because a lot of people's opinions are very mm. conventional. You know, Lady Bunny, who I revere, was like, the gays don't like rock and roll. And I'm like, well, some do, bitch. And she's a, <laughs> she lives across the street from me. Sometimes we're all sitting in the same park, a bunch of old queens. <laughs> Charles Bush and Flotilla de Barge and uh-huh. Linda Simpson and Bunny. And we're all like, well, here we are. <laughs> like the Golden Girls. <laughs> and Lady Bunny, my favorite quote of her. I mean, she's funny as hell. But she's in rent-stabilized apartment across the street from me. And we like talking about him. She's like, I know. I have no idea, the apartment I procured in 1990 would be the apartment I would die in.
0: (laughs) Well, everything's got a tragic ending. Yeah. So is that the way, is that the birth of Hedwig? I didn't actually realize that. I thought the character was born for a play. Did you have a stage show as a drag queen and That naturally bled into... I thought of having a theater piece that used rock and roll. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Steven encouraged me to promote one of the characters who became Hedwig, who was based on a babysitter of ours named Helga, who was also a prostitute. So she was like the initial inspiration. And I was kind of scared of drag because, you know, you're taught that your feminine side is the worst thing you can have if you're a boy. So I was terrified of that and forced into it because it was a drag club to do our first gig that with material from what would eventually be a musical. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, it was always going to be a musical, but we wanted to develop in clubs to keep the inner rock and roll energy instead of a theater, which people sitting down can rob that energy. So I wanted the feeling you had in a punk show in a musical, which Mm -hmm. was not common, you know, some ways, Hair was maybe the only one that kind of did that. You know, I never thought the so-called rock musicals of the moment were really very rock, mm-hmm. even if they were sincere. And I was offered at the same time to play the, the original production to play the angel, the Puerto Rican at that time called Drag Queen in Rent. And I, for, I was like, guys, <laughs> farthest from Puerto Rican. I, <laughs> you know, this was way before... We were really thinking about those things. But back then, that was a dumb choice. And I, I was doing big anyway, and I was like, thank you, Jonathan Larson, you're very sincere. I love what you're trying to do. This is not for me. And it, still, the music is not really you know, what it's supposed to be, which is East Village Rock. So we wanted to do that in, in clubs first. And then once we had it ready for full production, no theater wanted us. The public theater, all of these downtown theaters, ghosted us. So we, our producer, who is also our director, Peter Askin, who I worked with because I loved his work with John the Guizamo, built a theater for us in an old hotel, now called the Jane Hotel, in the ballroom. So we built an off-Broadway theater for Hedvig. Wow. You know, a 260-seat theater. And we were, from the beginning, people stayed away in droves. (laughs) But the press loved us. Celebrities started coming. Even Madonna. <laughs> was kind of calling attention to herself the whole time during the show. But then Bowie and Patti Lepone and Danny DeVito and Glenn Close came 10 times. I made Glenn Close come 10 times. That, you know, it was just like all these rock stars, you know? And it was like all the people we worshipped were getting it. Even if the regular audiences were silent, you know, the people we loved got it. And we were able to make the movie, which was again, a flop. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Hedwig, you know, but people found it through word of mouth through the DVD. And the first time Hedwig actually ever really was successful in a financial way was on Broadway with Neil Patrick Harris, which was years after, you know, 20 years after its inception or twenty five. Suddenly, we had the imprimatur of Broadway. Broadway was ready for punk and drag, and we were the toast of the town. But I was too obscure to open it. You know, I had to be Neil Patrick Harris, who did us a great service. And then, in effect, I replaced myself later in the run
0: (laughs) and made money as Hedvig for the very first time. Wow. But I guess that goes back to what you were saying about, you know, follow your... Artistic passions and just trust that they will eventually bear fruit.
1: Yeah, it's just keep your eye on the prize, pay your bills, don't be dumb with money, but don't be dumb with only thinking about money because that leads directly to antidepressants, (laughs) plastic surgery if you have any money, and despair. Right. You got to have the stuff that you care about. And that might be your child, you know, it might be your house making it beautiful. But to me, my creative thing was Hedvig, uh-huh. and the other things I've written. Uh, and now weirdly acting is my money job while I do the weird, you know, Cancellation Island podcast or my new tour, which is called Cassette Roulette that I do with Amber Martin. And we spin kind of wheels of fortune on this giant cassette to choose the songs uh, that we sing from our career.
0: Beautiful. I love that. There's a drag queen here who does uh, Burlesque Roulette. And she just hands her iPhone over and it puts it on shuffle. And the audience decides when the song changes and whatever song comes oh. on, she she has to strip to it. So love yeah, it. love it. Back to Hedwig for a second. I'm curious how, I mean, as you say, it's 25 years that it's been going. How do you see it now, 25 years on? You know, how how has it aged for you?
1: I love that it people find it of different generations and they do with it as they will. You know, I was very excited by a production that came out of Leeds uh, with With Davina Campo. Yeah. Who was fantastic. I just saw tape, but a wonderful trans director, Jamie Fletcher, trans Yitzhak. It felt like the next generation of Mm. head. Do with it as you will, you know, what a, what a compliment that someone would want to reinterpret what you're doing. And I hate when people just imitate what, other productions that have already been successful. It's like do something different. There was a San Francisco production where there was 10 head bigs, one for each song, you know, different ages, genders, sizes, great. The exquisite corpse, the myth of the origin of love were cut in half. We are more than one person to be whole. That is the message However, we're mutilated by the state, by the patriarchy, by the binarchy saying what it is to be a man and a woman, and a woman is a man with his dick cut off, which is the patriarchy telling us what we are. Hedvig was a victim of that, was not a trans story where she's discovering her trans, is like forced into it to be free, and then dumped in a trailer park, and then finding their way through creativity, through the mask of drag through the rock and roll through writing the songs through possible love with Tommy, which ends badly, but there is new wisdom. So by the end, even the drag, the, the cocoon, you know, for the larva is, is cast off and the naked butterfly of Hedwig, a gender of one walks into the room saying here's my scar here's who i am take me for what i am call me what you want but i know who i am now you know that is the message of Hedwig, which is why anyone should be able to play it yes you know if we're taught, drag is about transformation theater is about transformation theater is about putting yourself in someone else's shoes Theater is about telling a story which is not necessarily yours in order to understand that someone else has feelings that you can identify with. and If you can't identify with someone else because of some cosmetic difference, they're a different race or gender than you or size, I feel sorry for you because you're not going to have empathy in your life. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need people who at times look like us come from the same background to give us a sense of we're not alone, but no one is really the same, you know? And if we're only telling our own story, then we have nothing but autobiographies and a Netflix of narcissists, Mm -hmm. you know? So to me, I want every story to be told. I want to hear every story, but I also we need our imagination to tell stories that aren't necessarily our own in circumstance and fact, but maybe our our own in terms of emotion. I am mm-hmm. not Hedwig, but I feel Hedwig's emotion, you know, and I understand that dislocation and that loneliness.
0: Mm-hmm. When I discovered the film in my late teens, early twenties, I didn't know much about trans issues and i saw that as a i saw the story as a trans story and you Mm -hmm. know and then you get a bit older and you realize oh that's doesn't really work as a trans story it's not it's it's not not about yeah it's not about that at all and i think you know people who view it that way are missing are missing the point as you kind of said it's well um, people
1: love to label mm -hmm. right and they want to claim yeah
0: and also it it came out at, at a time when there wasn't a lot
1: there wasn't a lot there was you know, a few queer coming-of-age stories, mostly teenage, you know, there was some more complex art films, but there wasn't a lot. And, you know, To Wong Fu is a cartoon. You know, that's more about drag. That mm-hmm. teen, I'm not sure who they were anyway. I mean, who walks around <laughs> in, in full, drag. full drag 24-7? It doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Trans is a different issue, right? It's not drag.
0: Yeah,
1: They intersect, but, you know, you, trans people don't dress like that. <laughs> <laughs> when they travel across America, right? It's a mixture of things, which has made sense because it was a lot of straight people making it. Yeah. They didn't really know. And God knows we need every story and we need realistic ones too, but we also need our, our fantasies, God knows. And my favorite artists are able to, are magic realist in a way, you know, famous filmmakers like Bob Fosse and Hubrick and, and... uh you know, Hal Ashby. These are people who are pushing the reality of it as well as talking about real things. Here's an example about young people needing to control and, and, and legislate before they have a lot of life experience. Like you said, you might look at Hedwig, and many of my trans friends found it comforting and, and part of their journey, while knowing that the character is not really a trans, you know, a, a trans person with agency is more of a victim that that Mm. escapes is in Australia they were going to do a big production with a queer actor who was well known and some young I guess they describe themselves as non-binary trans which is a whole other thing it's like binary and non-binary and you know the fight there don't reinforce the binary it's like don't tell me what to do and you know it's crazy but Decided that Hedvig was not allowed to be played by a cis person. In their view, it was a trans role, therefore, the actors should be trans. And that actor got into a DM fight and then tried to kill themselves. Oh, wow. And checked themselves into a mental ward, fighting with these 19 and 20 year old people who really just wanted the role. Yeah. You know, they didn't cancel the piece. Because if they're going to follow their own reasoning, they should say Hedwig is not valid because I'm not trans. Yeah. But really, they thought the piece was valid at first, but just wanted the role, mm-hmm. which I understand. There's very few gender non-conforming roles compared to non-gender, non-non. And there should be more. And whenever I write something, that's a priority. But Hedwig needs to be played by all because mm-hmm. I know people who have played it, who came out as non-binary after or found something out about themselves. It's the hardest role I've ever heard of in the world, physically and mentally and vocally. And everyone I've met were wildly changed by it for the better and no other role ever frightened them again. Mm. And to take that opportunity away from someone because they're not trans enough, maybe, you know, the character has to play Tommy too, Does that mean the actor has to be non-binary trans so they can take their shirt off or can a binary trans person play it? You know, if it's a woman, is it wrong? Are you saying a trans man can't play it? Bullshit. Mm -hmm. Anyone can play this role, Mm -hmm. any age, race, sexuality, gender. And the more the merrier, because it is in transformation that we find empathy. Either it destroys us, You know, what happened to Hedwig could have destroyed anyone, but she transcends it. And it's through performance that that happens, that she learns, that she's more whole. And I learned as an actor that I was a person of worth through my acting. And now I don't feel the need to act anymore. It's almost like my therapy. Mm -hmm. And to, to rob that of someone qualified for the role is wrong, you know. And so in effect, Hedwig was canceled in Australia. The production was canceled. And it infuriated me, you know, because it's like we are tearing our allies apart while Trump laughs. Yeah. You know, we are looking for trouble in our natural friends. Of course, you look, hold up a magnifying glass. Everyone's ugly. We all have our flaws. But for God's sake, what do we have in common? What do we need? What's the best we can seek from each other instead of? (laughs) No, you're not. You're not white. Therefore, you, you know, you can't understand me or you're black and you, you, you know, you're inherently different, you know, and it's like, yes, there are differences, but what do we have in common? What do we mm-hmm. need to do? What is the abortion that we need to reinstate? What is the healthcare we need to bring to it? These are the real issues that are going to help all of them.
0: Yeah. I totally and agree. Identity, po-
1: identity politics is useful to an extent, but when it becomes an obsession and when it becomes escapism from the real issues, it's a danger
0: yes uh your identity does not excuse your behavior
1: or or justify anything yeah. apart from a label you know which is might might be comforting for sure but it's like it's, it separates us if you go if you go too far with it
0: yes i think it's natural that has happened because you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of people who have never felt and it happened fast hard. yes it did happen the fast speed of it yeah and it's kind of swung too far the other way in some ways
1: yeah and it's it is, it is under tipping points, kind of moving back. The yeah. danger is that it pushes people to the right because yes. they're furious at what are being t- what uh, being told what to do. And a leftist critique of, let's say, cancel culture and uh, zealous PC policing is not always heard. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, you must be Ron DeSantis or Boris Johnson if you have a problem with uh, identity and stuff. And it's like, no, I'm not those people. Mm-hmm. And I do have a problem with rearranging the deck chairs when the Titanic is fucking going down. Yes. Yeah, and it's, really and sure. it's
0: important to be able to speak from within the community yeah. safely and, and hopefully to be with heard respect with and with, love. With, yeah. with openness, as you say. I just on the, the Hedvig thing again, going back to it, you know, uh, well, I love that you say it's for everyone because it certainly was a huge in, influence for me in starting drag and understanding that it was something that I could see myself in and, and find a place in. Before I saw that movie, I think I thought drag had to be sequin dresses and pageantry and, and a, a very specific style of drag, which is great, but it wasn't for me. Which is great. Yeah. yeah. There's
1: clown drag,
0: yeah. there's yeah. all but
1: kinds of drag.
0: Seeing that movie, you know, the performance that saves Hedvig in that in that film is the performance that helped me figure myself out as well. And it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. You know, I was, I watched it again last week because I knew we were going to be talking. And I remember watching it when I was younger and the end scene when Hedwig gives it all up and walks naked into the world i i was so angry about that because i felt mm. i was like she's finally got what she wanted and she's Dude, got that she's got the power she she's got the, yeah she's got the respect like this is her moment and she's just passing the wig off and i was furious i it was i was like i don't understand i don't understand <laughs> and i forgot that i felt that way until i watched it last week and and thought oh no i i get it now <laughs> and and if if anything, she needed to step away, like that, maybe earlier, she, yeah, yeah, maybe a bit <laughs> earlier, maybe a bit earlier, but it's yeah. just interesting how, and maybe that goes back to that thing you were just saying about youth and not necessarily understanding
1: yeah, we know what's we know what's wrong with the world when we're young, God knows, and we're trying to separate ourselves from the makers of that bullshit and Maybe in a little bit of a lazy way, you know, to like a political thing is different from actually doing some work. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm missing the outrage about abortion right now. It's like, where's the fucking protests that are not just online, which are, to me, lazy activism. Abortion activism, pro-life activism is even more lazy because you're just... It's easy to, to love something that's not in the world yet, that's unborn and has no practical... Things you have to do to take care of it. Yeah, I mean, apart, you know, the pregnancy, you're taking care of. But you know, the Barney Frank's famous dictum: Republicans, you know, re- respect the sanctity of life from conception to birth, and that's it. Uh-huh. It's what a hypocrisy because it's actual work to help a kid, you know, and have child credits, and have health care, and have parental leave, you know, that's more than two weeks but that would affect the economy in their view or whatever you know or it's just bullshit. My mom was an anti-abortion activist so it was very much as you might have uh. heard in anthem homunculus. So I was very aware of it, the hypocrisy but also the true intention of like wanting to help. You know many of these activists were very nice people they just focused on something that didn't exist. My mom lost a son so she, mm-hmm. so her anti-abortion Thing was like no one else will lose their child crazy logic but it made sense to her mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: um i think this is probably going to segue us nicely into your final item which is your wild card and you've given the march on washington and perhaps that can tie in a little bit with talking about protests yeah
1: there was something that happened during the age crisis in the u.s that brought a lot of people together it pointed out a lot of cowards horrible hypocrites Closet cases, for example, that voted against gay rights and and AIDS funding. And I saw, you know, applauded presidents like Reagan and Bush ignore the plight of queer men who died in their hundreds of thousands in the 80s and 90s with no memorial. Weird, you know, things in common with COVID. And 1993 was, you know the rage was so huge, the sadness was so big that the March on Washington, which in effect made the city, you know, majority queer city, a million people, you know, converged on the city and put the AIDS quilt where every person who died who had a friend made a quilt uh, segment for a quilt that, filled the National Mall, you know, massive, kilometer long quilt. And it was incredibly moving to go there, walk among those, those memorials to those people, stand in an endless parade that never moved, get robbed in my hotel as we slept, go to a dinner for a hundred friends, beautiful experience, get laid, safely and realize you were not alone and walk in front of the, you know, gay couples walking in front of the Lincoln Memorial and going, this is what freedom is, you know, and love. And it was, it felt life changing. And two years later, the, the drugs came in, thanks in part to act up and a very successful multifaceted way of attacking the problem, shaming the leaders, putting a condom on Senator Jesse Helms' house while working with the drug companies who were wanted money. We're like, we'll give you money if you fucking get these drugs together. And this is how the trials work. And luckily, a lot of gay men had some power, the white gay men, to have these interactions. The people of color didn't always have that power who were suffering. So it was an incredible education in direct action that i think we can still learn from since liberals have a problem with agreeing on platforms and candidates (laughs) right-wing people don't because they love dictators we need to get together more and get and agree on stuff us anti-authoritarians and i don't mean in a woke way i mean in a plan of action way
0: Mm -hmm. you know let's let's make some fucking change way
1: yeah and the old cranky Right-wing people figured that out. They had candidates, you know. And, you know, we're learning. But it's like there is a complexity that I welcome in my queerness. You know, part of me is like, I don't want to be part of a club that wants me. You know, don't tell me what to be if I'm gay or queer. But at the same time, I I relish and treasure my queerness because it allowed me to question all kinds of received notions that were wrong. It's a privilege to be queer if it doesn't destroy you. And a responsibility. What are you going to do with it? Just be lazy, do meth, have s- unsafe sex. Is that you know to the same fucking pop music? Is that queerness, or is it actually changing the world with what we know and what we've learned? We have a responsibility.
0: Hmm, I love that as a rallying cry, and maybe as a as a nice way to wrap up. Well, what quickly then? What have what have you learned and in- What would your change be to the world?
1: Well, in the very smallest way, energies that we might call male and female, and that changes from culture to culture, but we know there are some biological things. And, you know, in terms of being assigned female and male at birth, there's certain body things that happen. And then there's things that, as we know, are random. They might be genetic and might be some environmental, but it, it combines to form sexuality and gender which we don't always have a lot of control about, but we do have the control of whether to let those energies be expressed, to find harmony in our lives. I think of all of us as non-binary in a way and to limit ourselves to one or the other might be safer. You know, I like to, to do things that are a little bit scary to me. I like to not be told what to do. I like, the idea of Bowie's homo superior being the androgynous children, maybe then reinforcing the binary. But I do not by any means judge my brothers and sisters who feel the binary is useful to them. So when I first did Hedvig, I felt more myself than ever more feminine and masculine and me. And it girded me against a world that was terrified of nonconformity. Being queer is the gift of questioning and, and not conforming. Unfortunately, we rush to gay conformity or queer conformity or PC conformity uh, before questioning it fully, before living.
0: How does that uh, square with you with what you said about, I, I mean, I think I know your answer to this, but uh, with what you said about rearranging the deck chairs as the Titanic's going down?
1: Well, that's, the Titanic going down is climate change is rising fascism xenophobia racism misogyny homophobia transphobia these are the the things that threaten us and a lot of them come from a patriarchal extraction point of view i'm reading a wonderful history book called the dawn of everything about how you know there was an idea that we were in a state of Eden in a way when we were hunter gatherers moving around and there was no Kings and, you know, it was more about, and then it was agriculture that created in effect control, top-down control, which is not the case. You know, he goes through all this archeology span in Mexico and Mesopotamia in certain places. There were cities that didn't have Kings and rulers. People worked it out. You know, it was practical anarchism meaning fewer rulers and you make a deal with your neighbors to do something. Mm -hmm. It's not communism where everything belongs to everyone. And in Russia and China was a governmentally controlled thing. It was anarchism, which if you read about it, it's not black bandana wearing white hipsters, you know, smashing windows. That's just cosmetic Mm -hmm. or crypto bros who think of themselves as anarchists who just want to make fucking money. Mm -hmm. It's not about making the world better. Some, to some it is, and, and they get carried away with the greed. It's a, the, the Rearranging the deck chairs is getting furious at your close friend for forgetting your pronoun when they're in their 60s and they can't remember their own phone number when abortion has just been taken away from you. That's yes. called rearranging the deck chairs when the deck's getting really slanty and. <laughs> Here we go off the edge. It's weird that one Senator Joe Manchin stopped any kind of change for climate change in the U S one centrist. Yeah. You know, coal bearing Senator got convinced at the last minute. And now we have this $400 billion climate uh, bill that is the beginning of thinking about slowing down stuff that will destroy us all. Yes. That's an example.
0: And I think, what you said about queer politics—if we can get them onto a main stage and a bigger platform—do have the power to change everything that we th- that we know and think. And
1: yeah, about gender roles. Here's an example: gay marriage, which a lot of alternative gays were like, "I don't want to imitate my oppressor," but others are like, "I just want to get married." Right? I'm in a small town. I want kids. I don't want to have to deal with legal problems. So it was a no-brainer to have gay marriage. And one person, Justice Kennedy, made that happen. One person, just like Joe Manchin, is crazy. Without him, and, you know, Justice Thomas wants to take it away now. People were like, that's not a priority for us. What about equal rights in in housing and such? Gay marriage helps with those things, Mm -hmm. I find. They're part of the tradition, yes, but they're also reminding us we're all human and we have the same rights. So, And what it's done, the change that it's, in you know, originally it was, oh, it's going to change the definition of marriage and destroy the, the, the uh, institution. It doesn't seem to have done that, has it? <laughs> in fact, it's maybe made more straight couples think about different gender roles in their own marriages. You know, straight people fall into lazy habits of a guy has to do this and a girl has to do that. Queer people can do the same. Uh, queer people don't have the luxury of having those roles set up. So their relationships are very unique and their arrangements are between each other. And you have more open sexual relationships, certainly among male identified people, more often. And I think, you know, there's a certain male, like, you know, don't hem me in thing. Must get my seed everywhere <laughs> to continue species. <laughs> and I include trans men in that because, <laughs> you know, sex drive is big, but the, what happened is like straight people started going, does monogamy have to work for us?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or maybe just cause you're a guy, you don't have to be the breadwinner or mm-hmm. all those things. That queer do I have relationships. to have kids? Yeah, exactly. Do I have to have kids? Which queer people, you know, it's an effort to have them. So when they do, they mean it and they're mm-hmm. better parents and they say the queer relationships, the ones that last are stronger they can talk about shit more easily. They don't fall back on lazy tropes. They don't, you know, the guy's going to the pub, the, the woman's doing the, you know, it's like the queer world, it's all mixed up and you find what works for you. And that is an example of queer helping non-queer people.
0: Liberation and anarchy. Yes, please.
1: <laughs>
0: Anarchism. <laughs> Anarchism. Anarchy. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. I, need to, I, need to read your, I need to read this book you have mentioned.
1: Yeah, the Dawn of Everything.
0: I think that's where we should leave it. I want to thank you so much for your time. That's my new drag
1: name, Dawn of Everything. <laughs> dawn <I> love- <laughs> of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> All one word.
0: <laughs> um, that sounds like that joke I just heard in your anthem show, of Nature abhors a vacuum and so do I. I don't know why that was. Right, excuse my, <laughs> I excuse,
1: love the <laughs> yes. excuse the mess. Yes. the mess i have a horror vacuum nobody knows that phrase like i never got laughs when i would do it in oh media.
0: my god i just was cackling to myself in my I house know. people have
1: never heard that nature of a vacuum
0: well Dom classic doesn't. old drag don does not no.
1: my drag forebears are are not even drag queens they're like quentin crisp and oscar uh-huh. wilde who uh-huh. were who were like proto drag right uh-huh. just and they bitches. were Bitches, but literary, yeah. you know, like they, yeah. you know, Oscar Wilde's last words were either the wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you can't, you can't use that at a straight brunch full of Huns <laughs> as a drag no. queen. <laughs> you can't. No. <laughs> it's not what they're there for.
1: <laughs> I even borrowed an ancient, well, it was a Beatrice Lilly joke that, julian clary i don't know if you know him if you're uh-huh. in L- london who's kind of old school uh hilarious i did a play with him in the 90s but at the beginning of the show when people are he's like oh i do love a warm hand on my entrance <laughs> love it i love a double I'm entendre consider
0: that stolen thank you so much
1: you're welcome it's a pleasure i love how smart you are
0: oh thank you for your time It's been a treat getting to chat and I hope I get to see you in New York or something one day real soon.
1: Awesome. And good luck
0: on all your endeavors. Thank you. And you. Okay. Bye. Bye. That is it for this week's episode of the things that made me queer. As always, if you enjoy this series, Now would be a great time for you to head over to Instagram and share about it on your stories. Why not? Anything you can do to help get the word out about this podcast would be hugely appreciated. Thank you to my guest this week, John Cameron Mitchell, and we will be back next week with another amazing guest and more of the things that made us queer. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production. Our theme song is Something Like Summer, provided graciously by Caveboy.